0: We've survived another fortnight, and somehow between the last episode, and this episode, I think Alex became a big shot YouTuber.
1: Oh, did I? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you definitely upgraded the camera. For those that are tuning into the live stream uh, on this Wednesday night, you're looking sharp. I think the beard probably helps. I'm liking
1: the beard. You know, I'm a fan of the beard. I uh, I have launched a YouTube channel, officially, officially, official. Now it's on the podcast too did a video this week on Ansible and Docker Compose um, secret management. So if you find that kind of thing interesting, there'll be a link in the show notes. I'm launching it kind of as a, an aside to um, a new consultancy company that I've been working on for the past few months. I have a very unfinished website over at ktzsystems.com. Basically what we're going to do, freelance infrastructure consulting and building cloud-based solutions using infrastructure as code for other people. So if that's of interest to you, shoot me a message over at contact at ktzsystems.com. That sounds like a
0: great idea because what you can basically offer is if they no longer want to work with you, you can hand them the playbooks or whatever it is. And the next people that take over can just stand everything up they need to. They got everything. It's self-documenting. They can recreate the infrastructure. It it sort of is a, a guarantee of avoiding vendor lock-in is what you're offering
1: that's the idea i mean all of my code's been open source for many years uh, on github but that doesn't mean that everybody else understands quite how my brain works and how it all fits together and <laughs> you know there are people out there managing stuff for the cloud so the idea is i've been working with some clients over the last few weeks who are very good in their field and they want to deploy solutions with other people I know lots about ZFS backups and how to automate things and you know, make things talk to other things over VPNs and do all sorts of infrastructure related stuff, right? But they're dealing with the client relationship side of things. And so I'm essentially a mercenary out for hire to build you your infrastructure. Do That's your that could be your theme song, Alex, you know. Right. So somebody needs to sample that. That's now the theme tune of self-hosted.show. I am proud of you. That's a great, that sounds like it's going to be a good venture. Could also be a ton of work, you fool. I don't know what you're getting yourself into, but. Definitely the YouTube side is a lot more work than I think I appreciated. You know, a podcast is one thing, but video is a whole nother beast.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, trying to get something out there that's YouTube worthy and all that kind of stuff is very tricky too. I I get you, but you'll figure it out. And I think in, you know, today's world, isn't that kind of how you promote a new business is with the, with the tubes of. You and the social of the media is. probably means you got to become a big Twitter guy too, right?
1: <laughs> All right. Yeah. Just in time to catch that dumpster fire. <laughs>
0: yeah. Maybe you could do,
1: maybe you could be the first Ansible guy on TikTok. Maybe that's the way to go. You know, get your TikTok going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. Did you see that Git T 1.19 was released this week? Very exciting for me personally. You know, I'm a big Git T guy, Alex. I don't believe it. But it is exciting, genuinely, uh, if you're into running GitHub Actions. And GitT is a local kind of GitHub clone, if you like. its I mean, probably legally speaking, I shouldn't say that. But it's designed to emulate a lot of the features of GitHub. A GitHub alternative, one could say. One might say a GitHub alternative. And with this release this week, uh, GitHub Actions has now got a built-in CI system that emulates a lot of the GitHub Actions functionality. Heck yeah. You can reuse your familiar workflows in GitHub Actions with a self-hosted GitT instance. And whilst it's not yet quite currently fully compatible with GitHub Actions, they do intend to become compatible, uh, as compatible as they can do in future versions. Yeah, this is something that is, if
0: you're getting uncomfortable with the centralization around GitHub and you're you're looking for an alternative, this is something that might be a little easier than GitLab. That's kind of what I've been told. Um, and also, you're seeing a lot of platforms that offer one-click app deployments. You're seeing them offer uh, GitT more and more these days, which is really great. Makes it available to more people, makes it easier to decentralize this type of thing. It doesn't all need to be on GitHub especially for your own private stuff.
1: I mean, we saw with Docker this week, didn't we? The, the perils of centralizing everything in one place. And I know GitHub are making plays to be the container registry of the internet. It's nice to have another option that is kind of syntax compatible with GitHub Actions. Uh, that you know, that, That's the big issue that I have with GitLab. Not that it isn't great software and it doesn't work really well because it does. It's the fact that it's its own thing. And a lot of that is because GitLab runners, I think, predate GitHub Actions. And so that just, you know, split there, that fragmentation in the ecosystem there means that it's not quite as easy as it could be to shift from one to the other. And the reality is, is GitHub Actions have proven to be very popular. People love
0: them. So that compatibility is, uh, it's very, it's going to be very enticing for people that are looking to move from GitHub. So Docker, we talked about Docker in episode 502 of Linux Unplugged. Alex joined us, linuxunplugged.com slash 502. And Alex did his homework for that episode and did a great breakdown of the history of Docker in general, just to kind of set up the context around their recent Docker hub decisions with open source projects and uh, kind of set us up perfectly for today's conversation around looking for alternatives. So I know it's kind of asking for people to do some homework, but. Uh, After you listen to this episode, you can get some background context by listening to
1: episode 502 of Linux Unplugged, and plus you get more Alex. What's not to like, eh? Now, all this Docker hoopla got me talking to a longtime friend, Alex Ellis, who wrote a blog post about the fact that Docker was deleting all open source images from Docker Hub, potentially without warning in as little time as 30 days. It really was quite a shocking announcement from Docker. So make sure if you haven't listened to Linux Unplugged, you at least have a quick look through the blog post that's linked in the show notes so you know that we're, what we're talking about. It was really just, to me, mind-boggling that Docker scored such a own goal on this one. It highlighted such a huge risk for organizations. And, you know, you you think to yourself, oh, well, if if the Docker image goes away, I can just rebuild. I can clone the Git repo and rebuild the image from the source code that's in the Git repo. Except the way in which containers work, particularly the, the Docker format, you have a from tag at the beginning of your Docker file, which is usually referencing another image somewhere else. It could be uh, an Nginx specific image, it could be Ubuntu, it could be Fedora, you know, lots and lots of different options for upstream images that you could be referencing. And what if they go away? Well, then suddenly your code locally is relying on an upstream dependency that's no longer there. Huge risk. And like I said, uh, it got me chatting to an old friend, Alex Ellis, and uh, he and I recorded a short interview for the show. So here we go. So, welcome to the show, Alex Ellis, who is the founder of OpenFast. I, I met you, I think, a, a while ago, Alex, at uh, a- some kind of a Docker event in Trafalgar Square in London a long time ago. How are you doing?
2: Doing well, thank you. Yeah, I remember. I think it was a doc- one of the Docker birthdays, and it was, uh, in a a trendy startup office somewhere had come down on the train for the day just for that. And um, yeah, they had a cake and demos and people were starting to play with this new tool called playwithdocker.com. And uh, I, about that time, I was working on this idea of OpenFaz, of being able to run functions on, at the time, Docker Swarm.
1: It's very interesting. I think you and I also share a few hobbies. I, I noticed that you have some woodworking, coffee-related products in your in your online store.
2: Yeah, that's right. I really love um, hand tool woodworking. So, if there's someone listening and they, they sort of love their table saw, it's not that kind of woodworking. It's um, I follow Paul Sellers, a British woodworker. He's a, a master master craftsman in my eyes, but he calls himself an amateur because. He approaches it as a normal person and he makes all of his articles and content something that anybody in the world could start with without any power tools. Absolutely.
1: I mean, I'm more of a a friend of the hot dog table saw because I value my fingers, but, uh, you know... That's how it goes sometimes.
2: If anyone doesn't know what, what that is, it's the, the table saw that if it feels your finger, any electric pulse from your body just completely basically blows itself up. I think it costs $200 to buy a new unit for it. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I prefer that than a, a trip to the hospital. But um, Exactly. So you came across my radar again this week with the uh, the Docker hoopla last week. We covered that pretty thoroughly on Linux Unplugged on Sunday. Uh, so go check that out, linuxunplugged.com slash 502 for a full breakdown there. But you and I were talking in the back end and you've been up to some really interesting stuff, uh, you know, outside of the OpenFast ecosystem, even looking at improving GitHub Actions and runners. Tell me a little bit about this firecracker stuff.
2: The main thing that I've been doing since 2019 is building a sustainable commercial business around OpenFast. And that involves commercial add-ons. It involves hiring people and paying paying full-time salaries and, and giving support to companies that, you know, value having support and a response, somebody to talk to about things that go wrong. But I'm still incredibly curious. And that's something that I've always had is this curiosity of, so here's a technology that that I gel with. How could I apply it? And one of the things I created just as a spare time project was something called FASD. And this used very low level container tools like ContainerD with no Kubernetes at all, no clustering, and it brought the OpenVAS experience to a VM. And it was incredibly hard. I gave up after 18 months. And then I I came back about six months later and had another shot at it. And eventually I figured out how to make all these low-level components work together. And it was it's kind of useful that I had that knowledge. Because when I when I got interested in Firecracker, the original release of it, it wasn't really ready to use. Nobody had spent the time to build the prototypes. There was maybe a couple of blog posts. But even a getting started guide didn't show you how to get networking to it. So you could launch this VM with Ubuntu, but you couldn't get to the internet. The most interesting thing to do with a VM. And so all of that stuff that I'd done with FASD, first of all, I was like, could we take FASD and rather than running with, with Run C effectively what Docker uses, could we have Firecracker in the back end instead? Because there's this idea that You have Docker at the top, then you have ContainerD, and then you have RunC, or maybe you have one of the other tools that can effectively run a VM, like Firecracker, and you can just swap it and everything just works. And it turned out that wasn't the case. And so I kind of left Firecracker alone, and then I came back, I think, when we'd got much more into GitHub Actions. And I was finding that building Kubernetes operators was just so slow. We're talking about like a 20-minute build. Because we wanted to publish for ARM64 and x86. Cross compilation is slow, Kubernetes is slow, there's a lot of Go modules to download. And um, the GitHub hosted runners were just, just weren't up to it. You know, or, or every time you did a commit because you missed a typo or semicolon, you've got a good 25 minutes to wait again. Yeah, and that's no good. You want to be iterating fast, don't you? On top of that, you know, trying to build this commercial company I told you about, um, we had a load of private repos. And the thing about private repos is you get 3,000 minutes for free, and then you have to pay for them, the build minutes. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to pay an unbounded cost with a new bootstrapped company, even though it might be a reasonable bill for all I know for what we use. So part of me really wanted to try and solve that problem. How could we use potentially like Firecracker VMs on a bare metal host that we already owned or had access to or credits to, and have all of the CI run there. And to begin with, I just installed all of the tools on a a bare metal machine that I got from Equinix Nettle, tried to run my build, and the first thing that happened was obviously Docker wasn't installed. So then I went on the machine, I installed Docker, ran the build again, and then kubectl wasn't installed. So I installed that, ran the build again, and you can kind of see where I'm going with this until I got to where it started, a kind cluster. And because I had two builds running at once or in fact, actually they weren't concurrent because the self-hosted builder can't run more than one build at once. The first build had left some dirty state on the machine. The the default kind cluster was left over. So my second build failed. And that was kind of my life for about a week, trying to get, I don't know, like 20 repos at a time to run on there, each of them falling into side effects, each of them having maybe one obscure package missing that was on the hosted runners. And eventually just got it, you know, okay, and left it and tried not to think about how out of date it was. And that was okay for a while until I had to reinstall the machine and I'd do it all over again. I was like, this is too much. I knew there was a Kubernetes operator around that um, at the time was a third party uh, community thing. It looked super complicated, it needed a whole Kubernetes cluster to run it when really we'd been getting by really well with just one massive machine. The other thing that really concerned me is and this goes back to Docker. Is there's two ways to run a Docker build in Kubernetes. One is you mount a Docker socket from the host. That means that your CI is now root on the host and effectively could potentially take over the whole cluster. It's not good. You're not going to get access to the Docker socket on a GitHub runner anyway, though, are you? You would. If you want to run a Docker build with the Kubernetes operator called Actions Runtime Controller Arc, you have to mount the Docker socket into the runner, otherwise you can't run Docker. Now, this is the first way of doing it. That's mildly terrifying. (laughs) It's terrifying, but there's so many companies and teams that I've spoken to who are like, well, it's free. I'm just going to do it. And I wonder if their manager or their CISO realizes what they're doing. Now, one of the early customers for Actuated, the solution that we eventually built, um, they were doing that as well, and they hated it. And so I tweeted, and I've sent you a link if you want to share it later, and basically they were like, this is exactly what we've been looking for. Because the other thing about sharing the socket is that the version of Docker on your host could differ from the one in the build image that you've got. And that also causes problems, You also got to continually ch own the socket because apparently it gets reset and goodness knows what other issues. Now, the alternative is to run Docker in Docker. Now, if you Google Docker in Docker, the first thing that shows up is um, Jerome that was Docker's main trainer back in the day saying, don't do this. Don't do this. It's really ugly and it's slow. And that's the ever recommended approach is run Docker in Docker as a privileged container so just like mounting a socket, can now take over that host. And those are your two options.
1: So micro VMs are a really interesting way to solve that problem because, you know, you end up with a, instead of a one-to-many relationship on the Docker socket, you end up with a, a one-to-one relationship almost, right?
2: You do. And there's some pros and cons to it. On the, on the pro side, it's a completely immutable environment every build. So it's just like you had a, a hosted runner that you paid for. On the on the cons, you know, um, GitHub pay Docker Inc a certain amount of money to have a pull token, and I've actually logged into the runner. and if, if you look at the the Docker config file, they've already logged in with it. So you could I don't know if you could potentially take that and use it on your own machine, but that's what they've done. So when people run Docker pull in hosted runner, it uses that key, and it's authenticated. So you're going to have to do that yourself in each build because your cache is always going to be empty, which is actually a desirable thing. But if you're pulling a big image like two gigs, then you've got that empty cache, right? So that's potentially a con. And so we wrote up some instructions, wrote a GitHub action that configures a, uh, a cache on the server where all the micro VMs are. And then you actually again, get a faster pull than if you're on a hosted runner because it's literally over the loop back. So I'm going to put a link to all this stuff in the show
1: notes for those that are interested in following Alex's uh, Actuated.dev company and its its uh, journey over the next few months. Where can folks go to get started with
2: it today? Are you still in pilot or or what? So the idea with Actuated is that this isn't something for personal repos. It's not something for a one-man band. It's really for a team of about five up to maybe 50-plus employees, either multiple teams or, or company. Now, with OpenFaz, we tend to hear from developers with Actuated, we tend to hear from SREs, lead dev- lead developers, or, or DevOps leads, maybe even sysadmins within a company. And so that's kind of interesting because they tend to have money to solve problems. One company, UK-based, that I spoke to a couple of days ago told me they started out on Cloud Build. The cost now is £5,000 per month. And previously, it was five times less six months ago. So if they're on that trajectory, they're gonna be spending a heck of a lot of money in 12 months from now. Well, we could probably half that bill through a combination of bare metal with decent prices and a flat rate pricing plan through Actuated. So this is an open source. We're trying to build a business. We've got salaries to pay. We wanna be profitable. And so at the moment, the pilot is fully functional. We've got teams running VMs. We've had 18,000 VMs launched already in a few months. And we're just looking for people that want to solve that problem, that know that this Docker and Docker solution is not scalable, that are happy to find some servers in their cloud or bare metal installer agent. And that's pretty much all they have to do. At that point, we, through our control plane, send jobs to them.
1: Very good. Thanks for joining us, Alex. And I wish you the best of luck with this company moving forward. Make sure you go and check out his stuff over at openfast.com. There's all sorts of stuff
2: on his Twitter you're quite the prolific contributor to this to this space, I think. Yeah, thanks. And there's a there's a bunch of open source projects as well, like Ketchup, a really easy installer for K3s and Arcade, a, a great way to install just CLI tools in CI. I forgot that was you.
1: <laughs> You've done all sorts of stuff. Thanks for joining, Alex. It was a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Alex. That was great, Alex. Thanks to the other. It was that two Alexes. That was. <laughs> it, it's always a super fun time when Alex is talking to Alex. It's always Mm -hmm. a good time. Yeah, he's definitely off on some adventures. So a big thanks to Alex Ellis for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And uh, I wish you the best of luck with Actuate.dev. So this week it's Docker Hub, right? Who knows what it's going to be next week, next month, next year. Is it time to do a Jellyfin challenge, but with Podman? Hmm. You know, I've thought
0: about this. I've experimented a little bit with switching over to Podman. It's not 100% for me. But it is pretty dang close, especially now that they have Docker Compose support.
1: This is the first time I've used Podman properly in, dare I say, as a Red Hat employee, a year or two. It's been a long time, mm. genuinely, because the Docker Compose support was, um, it just wasn't there. You know, they, they had there was a dedicated application called Podman Compose. And it said it was a drop-in replacement, but in reality, it meant I had to change more than I was comfortable with. So... I just went back to Docker Compose and Docker. But this time, with the Docker Hub news, I thought, let's give rootless Podman containers a try. Yeah. So let's start by trying to answer the big question. Whenever I hear people talking about rootless, I always think to myself, why the F should I care? What? Who, who cares? My Docker socket's running as root. My Docker service is running as root. So what? Well, I had a listener this week give me a simple command, which... Uh, showed me that that attitude is perhaps a little bit outdated. So if you go to your Docker host and type docker run dash it dash V, this command will be in the show notes, dash V slash and basically mount your root file system read write into an Alpine container and then chroot into that slash mount directory, your root on the host. That's it. That's all you have to do. You don't have to wait for a CVE or a vulnerability, which has always been my argument. Perhaps it shows a lack of understanding on my part. Almost certainly it does. But uh, I was actually taken aback a little bit by just quite what that meant. And so that really had me thinking, hmm, these rootless containers, I, I should be taking these a bit more seriously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we had a really
0: fun episode of Linux Unplugged years ago where we kind of demonstrated the risk of Docker as root, where we opened up the machine to the world and let the live audience ssh into the machine and uh yeah it basically took a few minutes before neil had root access to the whole system it's just, oh, just God. you know and the nice <laughs> thing about podman too is podman feels not only like it was built with like it's like very common in the community to run it rootless so like there's a lot more community momentum around that but it feels a little lower level to the system. It doesn't
1: feel quite as much as like an abstraction as Docker does to me when I use it. So there's that aspect of it too. I think Docker suffers a little bit from being the first mover. Mm. Whereas Podman had time to stand back and take a look at the ecosystem as a whole and say what's needed to make this actually implement properly with the kernel and not have all of these air quotes hacks to, you know, like a, a daemon running as root solves a lot of problems. Yeah. But also creates some as well. Not having the daemon is really, really nice. It is. It also just, again, because it's
0: all kind of integrated in with with all the stuff that Red Hat's kind of focused on these days, it also just feels more native on a a Red Hat system. It feels sort of like, I don't know. And it worked right on NixOS, too. When I first deployed my Odroid 3, first go around, I was using um, Podman. And then after experimenting with a little bit and having a few things not work, I decided... You know, save myself the hassle. I'll just switch back over to Docker. But now looking back at it, I kind of wish I had maybe stuck with it.
1: So I did some testing this week on Ubuntu because that's my primary home server OS. Well, technically it's Proxmox, which is technically running an Ubuntu kernel for ZFS support with Debian user space. God. I know, right? But <laughs> Such that, a hodgepodge. It is what it is. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And so in the package repos i thought cool podman's in there i'll just do a you know apt install podman and so i went all the way through all of my testing ran my docker playbook you know did the secret injection like i showed in the youtube video this week and was just having tons of errors and problems and permissions issues and all sorts of weirdness that was just not working right and yeah after a couple of hours i kind of gave up and i proclaimed on twitter that it still wasn't ready and was ready to throw in the towel somebody tweeted back at me overnight and said, are you using version 3 or version 4? And I was like, well, I'm using the latest one. It was from the package repos. Yeah, dumb dumb. No, I was using Podman 3. So I upgraded the next morning to Podman version 4. And lo and behold, everything just worked. I mean, literally just worked out of the box. And it was, it was amazing.
0: Yeah, I, when I played around with it, I think it might have been when version 4 came out last I don't know how recent that is, so I'm, I my you know, my old man memory here might be failing me, but when I played around with it, I was so impressed
1: mm-hmm. with how straightforward it is. And you know, you can even run it on Mac OS now. Yeah, that's it's super nice what they've been doing. It's <laughs> pretty incredible. There's so many little things now that have, have been worked on. Um we were talking in the Discord just this week about Docker Hub and saying, wouldn't it be nice in the Docker client? if we could put in a list of registries for it to automatically search to overcome the fact that Docker hijacked that root namespace in, in all of their clients. And what I mean by that, for those that didn't listen to LUP, is rather than type typing docker pull uh, registry.url slash image into your Docker client, you just type docker pull NGINX. And it overrides that to actually, under the covers, go to Docker Hub, do- Docker Hub Registry.io, whatever it's called, And so with Podman, you can specify a registries.conf file and put in a list variable of all the different registries you want to search, just in a nice little comma-separated list. So did you have everything work? Sounds like things were pretty smooth for you. Like you didn't run into some of the problems that I did. Pretty much everything was smooth. I mean, because you're not root, there are some extra things you have to take care of. So my target for the evening was to run traffic through an NGINX container, or run NGINX through the traffic container underneath. And traffic, as, as you probably know, mounts a Docker socket to listen for new containers that are coming and going in order for it to automatically create the rules and routers and stuff for all of its TLS automation stuff. So first things first, to mount to a privileged port, and that is a port that's 1024 or lower, you've got to be root. Unless what you want to do is disable that, you can enable a sysctl parameter, and there'll be a link to that in the show notes. Down below uh, you need to allow privileged ports to be bound by unprivileged users. it's not difficult it's just something you've got to do. the next thing is you've got to enable the podman socket now this is for traffic and this is also for docker compose mm-hmm. so you can still use docker compose itself it's not a different project it's not podman compose it's literally just the actual docker compose binary because it turns out when they built fig originally which was the precursor to docker compose, they were just using apis public apis in docker and so what podman have done is reverse engineered those apis put them into podman and now docker compose just speaks to those directly it's pretty slick it is so you need to enable a socket and, and my issue was i uh, just out of habit i enabled the socket as sudo so i did sudo systemctl enable podman.socket. just out of habit turns out that means that Podman was running as root. So even though I was running every, all my commands as a user, Podman or Docker Compose, technically speaking, not Podman, because this was the other confusing thing. When I ran Podman run Nginx, the web server was running as my user. And when I ran Docker Compose run, it brought up traffic and Nginx underneath as root. And I was like, what the F is going on? This doesn't make any sense. So it turns out what you've got to do is enable the socket as a user service. So systemctl, uh, dash dash user, something, something. blink in the show notes. And as soon as I did that, everything worked exactly as you would expect. You need to then export an environment variable just to tell Docker Compose where the socket is. Docker underscore host is the variable. Uh, Super simple. Again, there'll be a link to a blog post explaining all of that in the show notes. It's a very homework-heavy episode, this one, but uh, (laughs) it's very difficult to explain some of these technical concepts audibly sometimes. So, you know, documentation is there for a reason. And then the final thing that you've got to enable is because system processes or system services terminate when that user session terminates by design you've got to enable something called lingering and that is for uh, on a per user scope so what you're probably going to want to do in the long run is create a dedicated podman user or a dedicated container user enable lingering and enable the socket for that user and then have that running in the background so that your your user's user logs in and just does stuff normally and then you can use su to change to that other user if you need to
0: yeah that's a good idea in general. I think that's a good practice people should get comfortable with anyways, even if they weren't doing this setup. Even run, you know, even have a user for your Docker containers. Because if you think about it from a file permission standpoint, you're going to have some containers that might need to get access to the same files. And it can get complicated if they're running as different users and whatnot. So yeah, a dedicated user, something that, like named Podman or like the container user, or name it something completely ridiculous.
1: I don't care what you name it. I'm not your dad. But that definitely is a good idea. It's a good tip. Now, the only containers that I ran into any issues with, unfortunately for me, were the Linux server.io containers. And this is because those containers have an init system in them. And that has a bunch of baggage with it that means that you can't necessarily just run as a specific user. It's trying to do like, uh, ch- how do you say this word? C-H-owns? C-H-owns? Ch-owns? Is that a word? It is now. I'm trying to chown file or chown. It is a word now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when those Linux server containers start up, it's trying to chone a file right, or an entire directory structure based on the PUID and PGID files that you set or environment variables that you set into the container. And that doesn't play terribly nice with rootless Podman because if your container runs with the root user, so that this is the process inside the container is running as root, then it runs as the container on the host which is actually kind of desirable. It's not like your root on the host. You're just root within the realm of that container. It then maps to your container user on the host. So, you know, ID 1000 or whatever it would be. Except if I try and specify my user ID 1000, say, into an LSIO container, it doesn't translate. And it maps to a sub UID. And there'll be a link explaining all this in the show notes down below. And it means I can't actually edit any of the files on the file system as the user that I'm running the containers as, but they will work just fine in the containers themselves. And so I thought to myself, well, why don't I try and run those containers, the Linux server containers as root, set P-U-I-D equals zero. Jobs are good, right? Well, it turns out that certain apps like web servers throw a little hissy fit if you try and run (laughs) them as root and they say no 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 you shouldn't do that there's really bad practice essentially what it means long story short is that the way in which the linux server containers specifically and any container like them is are are architected isn't really compatible with rootless podman at this time see and of course i use quite a few Uh, i think the linux server containers
0: are great especially for the multimedia stack stuff so you know right go figure i got a couple of those Nice discovery, though, Alex, because you give me a lot to work with here. I think I could get it working
1: just based on kind of this poking around that you've done here. But well, I do plan on making a YouTube video about it, of course. Now that's going to be the follow-up of everything in the podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> There'll be a podcast and a YouTube and a blog post and a tweet and a toot. <laughs> oh, it's going to be a bit much. Oh, but uh, I'm having a hard time keeping track of it all. Yeah, me too. We'll see how it goes anyway. But, I mean, hopefully we can work out some kind of an add-in script or a workaround specifically for the Linux server containers because I don't think I'm going to be the only person that asked them about it. When I spoke to some of the dev team about it this week, uh, their response was, well, at the moment, and certainly historically, we've targeted home server users that aren't using rootless Podman and aren't worried about that kind of thing. We've, we've just kind of standardized on Docker as the target. Uh, so we'll see, we'll see where it goes, and hopefully we can figure out a solution. Yeah, I, I, I really like those images. I'd Like you said,
0: I'd love to keep using them in Podman. I think they'd be surprised. They'd probably have more interest than they realize because um, I have never voiced an opinion. I've been a user of their containers for years, and I absolutely
1: would pull down the Podman stuff. But it would make it more compatible with Kubernetes and and stuff, not just Podman as well. So it's it's definitely worth investigating. I'd love to get some boosts or some emails from
0: some listeners out there that have made this Podman journey. You know, there's some people listening like, yeah, all in over here. So let us know how it's been going. Yeah. Now, the week that we're recording, there was a big Nextcloud announcement. They Announced. announced Nextcloud Hub 4, and they say it pioneers ethical AI integration into their collaboration suite. And so the way it works in NextCloud is you can install the NextCloud server and then you can go into the list of apps. It's kind of like an app store. It's an app store, I guess, which is built in. And they now have like a hub section. I don't know if you've seen this, Alex, but they have basically a hub section. You go in there and they have a bundle of all of the apps that make up NextCloud hub. And it's really their answer to Office 365 or Google Workspace, but with the advantage that you can self-host it. They have a mail client. They have They even have a SharePoint competitor now that they've introduced. And one of the big features in NextCloud Hub 4 is integration with services like Whisper, Stable Diffusion, and optionally, if you like, ChatGPT. And they're going to try to come up with a scoring system to tell you about the amount of information that may or may not be getting transferred to that third party in the process
1: and our very own Brent Gerva is on location in Berlin right now as we record so i think we'll be bringing you a much bigger update on this in this Sunday's Links Unplugged 503 yeah he's div-
0: he's he's all in speaking of going all in he's all in on nextcloud now you know not only has brent been a multi-year nextclouder but he's hanging out in the berlin office right now getting like the front row scoop on all this stuff i got to admit it does look kind of compelling we'll link to their announcement in the show notes and they have some examples and demos in there and It seems like a logical
1: integration, kind of like as assistive technologies to make a chat more productive or a document easier. I'm so glad to have NextCloud in our lives. You know, I I rely on it to to store all sorts of legal documents and photo backup from iOS devices and stuff actually works pretty well as long as I remember to open the app every few days. It's just such a treasure of a project and to see them integrate AI so early is absolutely wild and a, a fantastic achievement. I agree. And it's going to be the name of the game this year, is getting
0: some of these open source AI projects integrated. Whisper is a no-brainer because that is a super effective transcription tool. And so you can have it transcribe voice messages. They're adding a new voice note tool that you make a voice note and then it uses Whisper on the back end to transcribe it. I, too, Alex, am more hooked on NextCloud than ever. I mean, as you know, I'm an Android guy now. I got my Android phone, as you know, because I'm an Android user. You you have mentioned it once or twice. And the entire back end for that Graphene OS device is Nextcloud, like entirely. The contacts, the calendar, um, the notes system, backups go to Nextcloud. Multiple different note systems actually are using Nextcloud integration. And then the number one feature for the spouse is the recipes app. The Recipes app on Nextcloud combined with a local Recipes app, that's what thats what got her hooked. And it was going great, Alex. She was on board. I was making notes. She was on board with the notes because she wants to keep track of like maintenance and stuff like that that we're doing on the different vehicles in the RV. It was fantastic until one night she wanted to make dinner. And she opened up the notes app or the, I'm sorry, the, the cookbook app. And she got like a server 500 air. I'm like, what? So I log her out and I log her back in. Can't log in. I open up the app on my phone. Server 500 error.
1: Hmm.
0: I go to the website. You know, the, the, I go to the built-in NextCloud page. Everything's working fine. Well, I see that the cookbook app or whatever it is, the recipes app, whatever it's called, I forget, updated a few days ago. Maybe I need to update NextCloud to bring it up to date so they're compatible because NextCloud seems to be working. So I hit the old upgrade button because there was an upgrade available. This is before Hub 4. And um, starts doing the upgrade process, does the download, does the extract, and right as it's going through its process, it stops, generates a red error message about a database error, and then just puts the whole system in maintenance mode, throws its hands up, says it's no longer continuing, yeah. and I have a completely dysfunctional Nextcloud. Can't, can't use it, can't
1: log into it. Nothing's working. It's okay because you had a, a ZFS snapshot of the data set before you started, right?
0: I probably Or a
1: backup. I probably had a backup from about
0: four days ago, three days ago. You know, like, you know, it was, it was days. It was going to miss definitely some notes, definitely would miss some syncing stuff, and definitely miss a couple of recipes. So it was not a great option. Could be a lot worse. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't panicked, but I was frustrated. You know, that, where you're at that stage where you're like, oh, this is a pain in my butt. Not like, oh, God, what am I going to do? And then also, like all the notes and the recipes and all that stuff, it's all just markdown on the file system. So even if I lost the next cloud database, I still have the markdown. So really wasn't that worried, but I would like to know what happened. And I, I still don't really, I'm going to investigate it further. It could be a power outage because we had our, you know, Jupes is basically a moving UPS, but we had, a, we had an inverter issue. Actually, we had a surge protector issue. Our surge protector died in the line of duty but it caused the power to go out for a little bit. And so the server went down and then came back up and then went down again pretty hard. That could have caused it, but it was running for several days after that incident. NextCloud seemed to be working. In fact, everything seemed to be working except for the recipes app. So it could have been that something broke in the the SQLite database during the upgrade. I found an issue on the NextCloud GitHub. I found several issues where there is essentially something that Nextcloud was inserting into the database that SQLite doesn't support in one of their updates. So it could have been that. And they had to issue a follow-up update to solve a problem that was affecting users of SQLite databases. And Nextcloud, in the admin interface, makes it clear that you shouldn't use SQLite. I was using SQLite because I'm one user with, you know, it's like one, we have 1.5 users on this Nextcloud. So I thought to myself, well, SQLite can handle that. But what I didn't appreciate is the NextCloud project isn't building with SQLite in mind. They're building with more common, more robust databases in mind. And if you're going to use NextCloud in production, you really should move off SQLite because it seems like it may have been broken by upstream. Like they just put, they added, it was basically a regression that they had to take out. And I got caught right in the middle when that was floating out there in the updates. That could be what happened too.
1: I'll admit, when you messaged me, I I raced to my source code to go and check what I'm doing. (laughs) Thankfully, I, a few years, I mean, I've been running my next cloud. This instance I install in London, so it must be five or six years old now or something. And uh, I use MariaDB, MySQL underneath, and it's been, you know, I hate the phrase, but it's been solid as a rock. All right. That's good to know. Yeah. I was really just trying to avoid
0: the work. Um, because it's never bitten me before, but now I know. So, you know, we had to do like, uh, I, first of all, it was down for a bit, which sucked and definitely reduced the spousal approval factor and then had to run a SQLite repair against it and then got Nextcloud out of maintenance mode by by getting into the container like you have to do and then executing OCC, own cloud command line client, OCC on Nextcloud, and getting it out of maintenance mode and basically recovering Nextcloud on the command line using a command line PHP tool, which thankfully they include. I'm very thankful, and it gives me a little peace of mind because you can do quite a bit with that command with that OCC command line tool. But you do have to drop down to the command line in the container that you're running Nextcloud in and uh, start that process back up so then you can go to the web and finish the upgrade. (laughs) (laughs) okay and yes i am running a docker version where you update it via the web app it's that's actually how it works you up you update the container and you actually update via the web app as well but uh, it's back up it's running and so far it's been solid it was a little shaky there for a moment and it made me appreciate just how dependent i've become on Nextcloud. Um, i'm really really thankful because what it's done is it's given me a base to build all kinds of stuff phone tracking notes my favorite map locations i have a I have an app that just simply, I'm wherever I'm at, it just saves that location in a database on NextCloud. And then I can pull all of them up as a list and I can export them out as common mapping formats. It's so, just like little
1: stuff like that. I've built infrastructure that I used to have to use Google or Apple for. It's great. So you've got a piece of proper infrastructure now to look after. Yeah. What are you going to change? Are you going to migrate to MySQL or just... Yeah. Hope yeah. it doesn't happen again or... No, I got to move
0: databases and then... I'm going to make sure that the snapshot actually goes off-site too, because I realize that's the other thing is I have backups, but I don't know if the snapshots are going off-site. I have backups of all the data, but I don't know about the database.
1: I'm a huge fan of having each application have its own ZFS data set. And then I use Jim Salter's Sanoid tool to automate the snapshots there, but you could just as easily do it with any other you know, our sync or our snapshot tool as well, if you want to just do the files. Auto RESTIC's another one you could do. And then you could back it up to an S3 object store, because I know you're a big fan of S3-related uh, storage. So we'll put a link in the show notes for anybody that's looking to migrate from SQLite to MySQL. I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of the audience members do what I did and look at their next cloud deployment and realize, oh, um, yeah, that's right, I did... Push that technical debt down the road a little bit. And Mm -hmm. perhaps I should take care of it. So,
0: yeah, learn from Chris. Not only is it sort of underperforming using SQLite, right? You're going to get better performance if you move to a more robust database. And that's nice. But what I have learned, and I'm sure they didn't, they won't do it again for a long time. But what I've learned is upstream development on Nextcloud isn't catching and testing and building everything with SQLite in mind. And that's what I think bit me this time. Could be the power outage thing, so I have to make that caveat. But having read the issues on their GitHub, there's multiple instances of people having a very similar error, maybe a slight difference, but very similar. And it was all solved by a patch that they issued.
1: Belkin announced this week they've taken a big step back from Matter. Did you see this? Yeah, this is, I think,
0: what, you and myself, too, were kind of concerned. And this is the, the key thing about everybody using the same protocol and the same standards is they said, you know, we're going to pull back until we can, quote, find a way to differentiate. And I think that's the big issue that always drove these vendors to building their own proprietary home protocols. That's why we've been in this really since the 90s. People coming up with proprietary home automation protocols and communication standards because they want to differentiate. But the, the thing about Matter is it was supposed to address the fact that, okay, you had 25-plus years to try to get it right, and you haven't. So now we're all going to work together, and we're going to innovate in a different layer, not at the communications layer. And I can get behind that, but it seems Belkin, a.k.a. Wemo, doesn't like it. Which, what are they going to do? Stick to Wi-Fi and use their own proprietary apps and stuff? That's just going to feel like old, crappy technology.
1: Yeah, I think all it does is it endangers my, uh, my likelihood of buying another Belkin device moving forward, which was, the likelihood was pretty low anyway. So I'm not their target market. I just hope that other manufacturers don't follow suit. All right, we got some boosts into the show. And to keep runtime down, we're going to do the top
0: three boosts this week. But thank you, everybody who supports the show. As the network navigates 2023, Support for the productions from our members and the boosters, I think, are going to matter more than ever. And the hotel guy is our top booster this week. Get ready. 132,222 sats. It's one of your countrymen. He says, hi from the UK. Longtime listener. First time booster. Here's my origin story. I started listening to Alex after he was on the Home Assistant podcast. Hey, another one.
1: Jeez, I should go back on that podcast. Yeah, let's
0: give him a plug. The Home Assistant podcast. Since then, I subscribe to everything, along with Joe's family of shows, and I'm a Jupiter.party member, too. Uh, I thought my first boost should be into the show that hooked me to the network and was going to do this for episode 100, but who has the patience? Keep up the great work. JB Team, incredible content, production, and community. We'll, we'll always accept another boost for episode 100, you know? That's true. That's true. <laughs> Thank you for being our baller. I am Jerute comes in this week with 65,152 sats. Uh, he echoes something that several boosters... And uh, commenters and emailers and matrix people were talking about this week. People loved your diagrams and your schemas. They said, well done. Um, They want to know about a dual carrier OpenSense box to follow. Hmm. So yeah, so did you stick, did you
1: keep that extra network connection you were trialing from T-Mobile? Yeah, I'm going to keep it just for the next few months, I think. And uh, it's working fine on the, the VLAN that I talked about. Another question that we had was, what software did I use for the diagram? And I used draw.io for that. Poverty Panda did the initial run, and then I just modified it from there. I actually used to use Keynote on the Mac for a lot of diagrams before, believe it or not, because a lot of the tools for moving images around and connecting lines and stuff on, on the Mac, at least, is really nice. But draw.io is, you know, browser-based. That's a nice upgrade. And you can use it on other systems. <laughs> well, there is that, yeah. Uh, okay, so he
0: wants to also know, uh, have you played around with IPv6? Do you deploy it or use it? He thinks maybe us geeks should be pushing it eventually so we can a- end the dreaded carrier grade NAT tyranny.
1: No, I hate it. Go away. Leave me with my IPv4 addresses that I can at least remember. And to be honest, do we really want every device in the world to be publicly routable on the internet? I don't know about that. You know,
0: Alex, when I was a kid, just entering high school, all of the schools here in America that had internet were given ginormous IP4 blocks, like ginormous. And so nobody, no one even thought about it. When we first started getting TCP IP, we just put, pub, we just gave every computer in the district and printer that was on IP an IP4 address, a public IP4 address. They were all 169.204. And then we had a huge range after that from basically like, I think from like, I think we had 169.204.110, and then we had 169.204 to like 120 or something. I mean, we had a
1: ginormous, ginormous range. I mean, IPv4 blocks nowadays are a tradable commodity. That's insane. It was really something. I mean, our student computers,
0: student computers had routable IPv4 addresses. Now, most of the network's important vital resources were actually on IPX at the time, which wasn't routable. So, like, the the NetWare servers were
1: fine, but the Windows boxes got trashed. Maybe I'm just ignorant, but every time I've tried to do anything with IPv6 seriously, it's just been a hot mess. I'd say it's probably useful in a data center where you are going to bump up against the limits of, you know, local subnets number of devices. But at home, certainly I'm fine with the model that we have now. Maybe this makes me a Luddite. I don't care. It works well for me and my brain. I have a firewall. I have a bunch of IP addresses behind it. I understand it. Nat is good. I think that's it. I agree because it's like, I like, I
0: like IP4 on the LAN. I know uh, carriers and ISPs are all using IPv6 as well. So a lot of your traffic does end up going ar- over IPv6 for short periods of time. Um, but for me, I do prefer IPv4. Be- I-, I guess I wouldn't care if my public firewall uh, port was ipv6 uh, i don't really care yeah, it's behind the true. land is where i care
1: yeah
0: all right and then our very last boost thank you everybody else who did boost in we really appreciate it but uh, scuba steve just met the cutoff with fifteen thousand sats hey chris and alex i have next cloud running on a five dollar vps since 2016 well done steve and in general it's been really reliable however my linux knowledge and experience has increased much since then thanks to the jb shows and i'd like to redeploy it using more modern tools. Oh, Alex, I think he's talking to you. (laughs) My current instance is installed the old-fashioned way, downloading the tar.gz from Nextcloud and setting up Nginx and using PHP on the host system. My question is, what installation method would you use for a rock-solid Nextcloud instance in 2023? Whatever I do, I'd like to get a similar six-plus-year runtime out of it with only updates, upgrades, and storage to manage. Thanks for the great shows, guys. See you at LinuxFest Northwest in October. Awesome.
1: I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I can't, can't wait either. So obviously my answer is going to be use Docker. I mean, rootless Podman. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so I think it really depends on how you stored the data on the back backend. Uh, I'm not familiar from your question how the database setup you used works. But uh, if you've been storing the data, let's say, in a MySQL database, it should just be a case of bringing up the application in a container and pointing the correct environment variables at that database and hopefully you're good to go yeah i was th- i thought maybe it'd be an opportunity for you to work in some ansible there you know but uh, you didn't oh well i mean if you want me to work if you want me to work the uh, the ansible angle go watch my latest youtube video Hey. <laughs> <laughs> see you're getting this youtube thing down where i talk about secret management with docker compose and ansible and how you can deploy docker containers automatically using ansible
0: yeah i mean um, i could try to work in a nix angle here too but i actually don't think you need any of that necessarily scuba steve i think uh, you really with a with a container like and using something like docker compose it's so simple once you have the database it's so simple to just spin the application up like you could move
1: the database to a new server spin the application up again i mean it really makes that way more portable for, that's absolutely what I did. When I lived in London, my next cloud was on my server in London. When I emigrated, I threw it up on a, a Linode VPS for a, about six months whilst I actually emigrated. And then when I was ready, I brought it back on premise again uh, hmm. this time in America. And it worked super well. I just did, I think it was a ZFS replication of all the snapshots or maybe it was an R-sync. I can't remember. It was a while ago. But yeah, it's super portable. That's a great
0: idea. I should keep that in mind if I ever have to shut it down on Jupes for a bit. But, you know, I thought I could move it to the studio. Like I was thinking, what would I do with that? But no, I could just move it to the cloud for a bit. Totally. Thank you, everybody who boosted in. Uh, You can get a new podcast app if you want to check out the new podcasting 2.0 features that we're working on behind the scenes. Or if you want to keep your dang podcast app and you just want to send us a message, go get Albie, getalbie.com. That's a web-based booster. And then you go to podcastindex.org. Look up self-hosted. We'll put a link in the notes. And you can just boost right there from the webpage. And then you don't have to change your podcast app and you can still get your message on the show while supporting us.
1: And don't forget, LinuxFest Northwest is back this October. You can go to linuxfestnorthwest.org to get all the information. Call for Papers is open. So if you're looking to do your first open source talk, we'd love to hear from you.
0: Yeah, I think it'd be great to see a good selection of self-hosted topics at LinuxFest. So, you know, people could go to LinuxFest and learn a lot about self-hosting. That was one of the very first talks you gave at a Linux Fest, and I really enjoyed yours. Yeah, and look what happened. I mean (laughs) we need a lot more. We need everybody doing it. So go check it out. Linuxfestnorthwest.org. And then just a general reminder, it's a little late by the time this episode comes out, but we do have meetups, just sometimes rather impromptu. And uh, we put them at meetup.com/slash Broadcasting. So if you join over there, you'll get notified. Like we just had one in Berlin, but uh, the timing doesn't work out by the time you're hearing this. But if you were a meetup member, you would have known about it already.
1: Selfhosted.show is the place to go to get in touch with us. And you can find me on Twitter at Ironic Badger. Yeah, I'm over there. Sure. At Chris L E S and the show at self-hosted show. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was Selfhosted.show slash 93. Before the show, Chris had me install Microsoft Edge to look at the uh, chat GPT with Bing. And during the course of this one episode, which has been an hour and a bit to record... Microsoft auto updates already nagging me. I know it's
0: the worst thing and they're really insistent. So I got, I had edge. I installed edge a while ago because it turns out out of like Firefox and Chrome edge handles WebRTC apps the best with the least system resource impact. And so like when you're on a laptop and you're traveling, you don't want the fans kicking off or something like that. So inevitably I wound up on edge for that job. So I had it on my system but I probably installed it a year ago. And then I disabled the Microsoft updater because it's horrible on Mac OS. So the other day I go to use the Bing bot and it says, sorry, you have to be using a current version of Edge, not just Edge, but a current version of Edge. So I click the update button and it tells me I can't update because it can't find Microsoft updater. So I have to go download Edge completely all over again, which is a package installer, not just like something you drag into the applications folder, but a whole package installer. And you know what they do? They reset up Microsoft Auto Updater and they add both Auto Updater and Edge to the macOS auto
1: login items. So it starts up both of those things when you start up your Mac. You and I are both old enough to remember in the 90s when Microsoft got a huge antitrust judgment against them for bundling Internet Explorer with Windows. This kind of feels to me like Microsoft at its core, hasn't changed one bit. It's like when, they, when there's blood in the water and there's a new product opportunity, all
0: of their old tricks come back. Like they know they got something here where people want to play around with this chat bot. So they are using it to funnel you into Edge. Mm-hmm. They're forcing you to, you know, that bot could run on an any browser, no doubt. And no doubt any Chromium-based browser. And then to, to to not only bundle it with Edge, but now you know they're they're bundling it with Office too. All the Office apps are getting a copilot. For better or for worse, but it, it, it's bundling, it's forcing users to use their browser and their software together. And it is it does absolutely remind me of the old Microsoft. And it it does feel like a regression. Like the last few 5 years even microsoft's been pretty good but when there's a new market opportunity and like i said when there's blood in the water it seems like their their worst side
1: comes out every single time but it's okay because we heart open source or we 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 heart linux i think it was right yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah well i mean i'm sure they do all their back end runs on it yeah yeah they love they love selling azure systems running linux they
0: you know i mean they, th- that is true to a degree but they also love market share and uh you know, you know what we don't talk about is they're kicking Google's butt right now. They don't want to slow down. But so not only did they beat Google to market with their investment in open AI and the access to chat GPT before before Google got barred or anything else public. But now they've lapped Google again by shipping this stuff in the office products before Google's got workplace all up to date with the bot stuff. It is. I mean, so I mean. They're they're getting really aggressive, but they're just getting kind of sloppy and mean in the process. I mean, can you blame them? They missed mobile completely. Yeah. And then they they also, they lost
1: their web dominance too. You're right. The Internet Explorer used to be the king. So on the one hand, we can sit here and commentate that they're being insidious bastards again. But also, you know, if you were in Microsoft Towers, you you, you know, you could see it. Yeah, maybe. I suppose so. I think the question is, is when are we going to get
0: things like ChatGPT that are on our land, that are self-hostable? Like, the, you know, like the NextCloud announcement, you know what would make that NextCloud thing even better? Is if it could securely and privately use your own files on your own NextCloud server as a model, right? So if it could learn the people you talk to, the people that are in your pictures, your note structure, the names of things, right? If they could learn, if they could index NextCloud your own NextCloud privately, and then run chat
1: GPT-like software on that, that'd be really cool. So check out this Git repo. It came into the top of the self-hosted subreddit maybe 10 minutes before we recorded, maybe maybe an hour. So I didn't have time to check it out before this episode. I was going to save it for the next one. Uh, This is a self-hosted chat interface to run some of these GPT models locally. Uh, I haven't looked into it at all, beyond looking at the home of the uh the repo page but it looks like exactly what you were just saying chris
0: okay so you got to get your hands on the models but if you can get your hands on the i guess they're called alpaca models oh there's a download script for downloading them inside the container oh that's slick and of course they have a docker compose. <laughs> <laughs> does it work with podman <laughs>